In your typical action movie, when cops raid a building to catch the bad guys, we see that when the cops enter the first floor, the criminals will flee to the second floor. Then as the cops get to the second floor, the criminals will run to the third floor. And this process continues till the criminals reach the top of the building, at which point there is nowhere else to run and they resort to hiding. A similar scenario happens when we accept submission. As we work to perfect our religion, we move from floor to floor, destroying idols and perfecting our submission to God alone. And as we do this, our ego flees. With each step towards righteousness, we cause the ego to run until it realizes there's nowhere else for it to go. And at that point, the ego stops running and resorts to hiding. In a final attempt to preserve its existence, the ego will play a very clever trick. It will begin praising us for all the righteousness we've achieved. It will remind us how far we've come, how great we are, how we do all our contact prayers, how we're so much better than other people. And if we fail to recognize this ruse, before we know it, our ego will transform our righteousness into self-righteousness, allowing it to live another day. Self-righteousness is the belief that we are morally superior to others, to the point that we fail to see our own faults, but we're great at seeing the faults of others. A perfect example of self-righteousness is that of Satan. When God commanded Satan to fall prostrate before Adam, he refused because he believed he was better than uh, Adam. And what's interesting is that Satan vowed to point out all the shortcomings of all the people as vengeance for being banished out of God's kingdom. So Satan's deploying the very act of self-righteousness, believing he's better than other people, failing to see his own shortcomings, and using his time and resources to point out the shortcomings of others. What makes self-righteousness so dangerous is that it looks and feels like righteousness, but it's far from righteousness. A perfect example is that of bad breath. We may not realize we have it, but it's repugnant by those around us. And that's exactly what self-righteousness is like. In this talk, we're going to go over 12 items that we can use to identify self-righteousness. Much of the material in this list came from an article I read from a Christian pastor named Sammy Abedi. This shows that self-righteousness is a trick that Satan's been utilizing for as long as humankind has been around. It's using this weakness in order to get us as we start approaching righteousness. And as a disclaimer, even though I'm presenting these items, I by no means am any less immune to falling into self-righteousness than anyone else listening. So let's get started. Number one, it's normal for you to think that you have special knowledge no one else around you has access to, and this makes you feel like you have an up on others. According to the Quran, the only requirement in order to be guided is sincerity. And we see this in Surah 56, verse 57 through 59, where it reads, This is an honorable Quran in a protected book. None can grasp it except the sincere. Our salvation is not dependent on any special information that is not available to everyone. No one has a monopoly on God's word and God's guidance. God can guide anyone who deserves the guidance. And for example, there are people who memorize the entire Quran, yet fail properly to understand one verse of it. There are people who have access to vast libraries filled with all kinds of scholarly works. But if they are not sincere, they will, they will not be able to convert that information into wisdom. In Surah 2 verse 171, we read the example of such disbelievers is that of parrots who repeat what they hear of sounds and calls without understanding, deaf, dumb, and blind, they cannot understand. Number two, it's common for you to walk into a room full of submitters and think they don't get it. 
It's quite clear that anyone who embraces submission today is not doing it for the popularity, but most likely out of sheer desire to try to please God. I've been a submitter, thank God, for a number of years, and I remember going to the submitters conference years ago and questioning the integrity of fellow submitters that I met before I truly got to know them. Who was I to make such a judgment towards a fellow submitter who is striving in the cause of God, taking time out of his day, taking money to strive to be with fellow submitters to grow and develop their souls? And what did I gain from writing them off? Nothing but the boosting of my own ego. In Surah 2 verse 13 we read, when they are told, believe like the people who believe, they say, shall we believe like the fools who believe? In fact, it is they who are fools, but they do not know. In Surah 83, verse 29 through 32, we read, The wicked used to laugh at those who believed. When they passed by them, they used to poke fun. When they got together with their people, they used to joke. Whenever they saw them, they said, These people are far astray. Number three, are you quick to label fellow submitters as hypocrites, idol worshippers, disbelievers? On the internet, there's a term, it's called Godwin's Law, named after the American attorney Mike Godwin, who made the observation that in a lengthy enough discussion online, the probability that one side will label the other side in some comparison to Hitler or Nazis will eventually reach 100%. Submitters have a similar phenomenon, but instead of resorting to World War II comparisons, we resort to comparing the other side to hypocrites, idol worshippers, disbelievers. And it can be tempting at times to paint individuals with a wide brush by labeling them as hypocrites or disbelievers. The argument typically goes something like this. If I can prove to myself you are committing a sin and you're not committing the sin out of weakness, then by default, you're falling a source beside God and therefore you are an idol worshiper, hypocrite, or disbeliever. If I use this kind of logic to make a broad claim against groups of submitters, then chances are that I am being self-righteous. Another way this can be done is if I believe that uh, all my understanding is 100% coming from the Quran. If someone comes with an understanding from the Quran that's slightly different than mine, I can make the jump that they must have used the source beside the Quran. Therefore, again, they're a disbeliever and idol worshiper. In Surah 6 verse 52, we read, Do not dismiss those who implore their Lord day and night, devoting themselves to Him alone. You are not responsible for their reckoning nor are they responsible for your reckoning. If you dismiss them, you will be a transgressor. By dismissing fellow believers and calling them hypocrites, disbelievers, we could fall into the camp of being a transgressor according to 6.52. In Surah 7 verse 198 we read, When you invite them to the guidance, they do not hear, and when you see them looking at you, they do not see. You shall resort to pardon, advocate tolerance, and disregard the ignorant. And this is something you're going to see in the following verse in 7200 is that God knows that this is difficult to do, to advocate tolerance, disregard the ignorant, to pardon. So therefore, God tells us in 7200, when the devil whispers to you any whisper, seek refuge in God. He is here, omniscient. Those who are righteous, whenever the devil approaches them with an idea, they remember whereupon they become seers. And consistently in the Quran, when God is asking us to do these things that require us to kill our egos, to stop being self-righteous, that God uh, ends that with seeking refuge in God from Satan the rejected because God knows it's at these pivotal moments that Satan's going to try to get the best of us. Number four, when you give the message, are people more offended by you and your delivery than the actual message? The reality is the truth can always stand on its own. It does not need to be offensive to make an impact. We see in the example of Saleh that when his people asked him what caused you to believe, they said the message caused us to believe. And this is in Surah 7 verse 75. 
When God commanded Moses to go to Pharaoh, he asked him to speak to Pharaoh nicely, as seen in Surah 20, verse 44. And if we cause people to be repulsed by the message, then we are partially responsible for their going astray. Therefore, we have to be extra careful that when we delivered a message, we delivered in the best possible manner not to repulse people from the message. In Surah 2 verse 44 it reads, Do you exhort the people to be righteous while forgetting yourselves? Though you read the scripture, do you not understand? In Surah 17 verse 53 we read, Tell my servants to treat each other in the best possible manner, for the devil will always try to drive a wedge among them. Surely the devil is man's most ardent enemy. In Surah 16, verse 125, God tells us how to spread His message, and it reads, You shall invite to the path of your Lord with wisdom and kind and enlightenment, and debate with them in the best possible manner. Your Lord knows best who has strayed from His path, and He knows best who are the guided ones. So God is saying, use kind enlightenment. Not harsh, not stern, kind enlightenment. In, in 41.33 uh, through uh, 35, we read, Who can utter better words than one who invites to God? works righteousness and says, I am one of the submitters. Not equal is the good response and the bad response. You shall resort to the nicest possible response. Thus, the one who used to be your enemy may become your best friend. None can attain this except those who steadfastly persevere. None can attain this except those who are extremely fortunate. And again, God knows how difficult this is. That is why the following verse in 41.36, God says, When the devil whispers an idea to you, you shall seek refuge in God. He is here, the omniscient. So God knows that this is a difficult task. And God is telling us to seek refuge in God during these times so we can use kind enlightenment, so we can resort to the nicest possible response when dealing with people. Number five. Do you guilt far more people to action than you inspire? Imagine me and you are hiking, and we each have this heavy load on our back. And you confide in me that it's getting very difficult for you to carry this load. And in return, what I do is I go and I pick up some rocks and I start piling it on top of your uh, bag. What would you think of me? What would you think of these actions? You would say, what is wrong with this person? But instead, if I hearing you Complain to me saying how hard it is to carry this load. I help you by lightening your load, by taking some of that load off your back. How would you feel instead? When we guilt, we're adding additional weight to the hardships of others in the process of caring. But when we inspire, we are helping our fellow submitters by lightening their load and giving them the encouragement to be steadfast and to persevere. And what's interesting is the both aspects, guilting and inspiring, all it takes are words, air coming out of our mouth, and we can choose which words we choose to represent, to help someone lighten their load or to increase their load to make the task that much more difficult. In Surah 3 verse 159, it reads, It was mercy from God that you became compassionate towards them. Had you been harsh and mean-hearted, they would have abandoned you. Therefore, you shall pardon them and ask forgiveness for them and consult them. And in Surah 9, verse 1 and 3, it says, Take from their money a charity to purify them and sanctify them and encourage them, for your encouragement reassures them. God is here omniscient. So God willing, let's be encouraging of one another. Let's inspire one another to be righteous. Let's not guilt people into righteousness. Number six, do you judge, correct, remind out of love or out of moral superiority? 
There is no question that we can judge. Surah 4 verse 105 tells us that we can judge by the uh, laws of the Quran. But when it comes to judging others, we have to ask ourselves, are we judging them to make ourselves feel better or because we genuinely love to see them guided? If we care enough to judge, we should care enough to help. We have to treat every human being on this earth as a potential believer as long as they're still living. And we have to love every human being as a potential believer who may become better than you or me in due time. And this is by no means just blind love. Our guide here is the Quran in Surah 60 verse 8 and 9 where it reads, God does not enjoin you from befriending those who do not fight you because of religion and do not evict you from your homes. You may befriend them and be equitable towards them. God loves the equitable. God enjoins you only from befriending those who fight you because of religion, evict you from your homes, and band together with others to banish you. You shall not befriend them. Those who befriend them are the transgressors. So again, if we care enough to judge, we should care enough to do something to help these people. And an example of that is that of Lot. When Lot was confronted by the people, he was willing to give his daughters in marriage if that would help them refrain from uh, homosexuality. And this goes to show the extent that he was repulsed by their sin, that he was willing to do something to have them refrain rather than just banish them. In 3104 it reads, Let there be a community of you who invite to what is good, advocate righteousness, and forbid evil. These are the winners. And this reminds me of these Christian groups who are so staunchly against abortion. But they do it out of love by opening up shelters for these moms who are contemplating abortion to give them a refuge, to help them out in this moment. And uh, we see another example with Abraham. Abraham did not even know the people of Lot, but he still implored on their behalf. And when he was asked to refrain, he did so. And God called him clement, extremely kind, and obedient. When was the last time out of sheer sincerity and love we followed up any judgment, correction, or reminder by at a minimum just praying for the guidance of these people? especially those outside of our immediate family or community, people that we've condemned, to ask God, please guide them in the right path. When people are guided, we all benefit. We have nothing to lose by praying for their guidance uh, and everything to gain. It draws us closer to God. And again, it's the same amount of effort to condemn someone or to pray for their guidance. Oftentimes I hear the argument that since God already knows who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, what's the purpose of uh, praying for the guidance of anyone? But the same argument can be made towards charity, since God controls all provision. God has a system, and while God knows the outcome, we don't. Therefore, if we implore God irrespective, it's like charity, and it's for our own good, and it shows that we are doing an act of selflessness. In 36.47, we read, When they are told, Give from God's provisions to you. Those who disbelieve say to those who believe, Why should we give to those whom God could feed? If he so willed, you are really far astray. So God is giving us these opportunities to grow and develop our souls. And the outcome is, what do we choose to focus on? Point number seven. Do you say things on Facebook that you would never say in person? When responding to someone on Facebook, are you looking for the credibility among your peers or from God? If you are more interested to receive likes from humans rather than blessings from God, then you're trading away your soul for a cheap price. 
In Surah 3, verse 77, we read, As for those who trade away God's covenant and their obligations for a cheap price and receive no share in the hereafter, God will not speak to them nor look at them on the day of resurrection, nor will He purify them. They have incurred a painful retribution. Additionally, if we repulse people from the message by leading a bad example, we bear part of their sin for going astray. In 9.9, we read, they traded away God's revelations for a cheap price. Consequently, they repulsed the people from his path. Miserable indeed is what they did. And in Surah 4 verse 85, it says, Whoever mediates a good deed receives the share of the credit thereof. And whoever mediates an evil work incurs a share thereof. God controls all things. While there are times that we are authorized to be harsh and stern, if we are act out of such a way, we must be absolutely sure and make sincere assessment that we are justified in our actions. Given that as human beings we have a predisposition of being mean, it's always worth leaning on the side of being kind and clement to make sure that we don't transgress God's laws. In Surah 4 verse 94 it reads, O you who believe, if you strike in the cause of God, you shall be absolutely sure. Do not say to one who offers you peace, you are not a believer, seeking the spoils of this world. For God possesses infinite spoils. Remember that you used to be like them, and God blessed you. Therefore, you shall be absolutely sure before you strike. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. And in 16, 126 through 127, it reads, And if you punish, you shall inflict equivalent punishment. But if you resort to patience instead of revenge, it would be better for the patient ones. You shall resort to patience, and your patience is attainable only with God's help. Do not grieve over them, and do not be annoyed by their schemes. And in 59.10 it reads, Those who became believers after them say, Our Lord forgive us and our brethren who preceded us to the faith, and keep our hearts from harboring any hatred towards those who believe. Our Lord, you are compassionate, most merciful. Number 8. Do you think the world would be a better place if everyone was like you? God tells us that per His design, He has made us into distinct people and tribes, that it is decreed for each of us different rights, and that He will put us to the test through the revelations He has given each of us. This is part of God's system, so we can learn how to apply tolerance and respect for one another despite our differences. The alternative would be to attempt to force people to believe per our personal guidelines. If we were to do this, we would make us no different than the tyrannical governments who persecute or banish people who have beliefs contrary to their own. In Surah 5 verse 48 we read, When we revealed to you this scripture truthfully, confirming previous scriptures and superseding them, you shall rule among them in accordance with God's revelations. Do not follow their wishes if they differ from the truth that came to you. For each of you we have decreed laws and different rights. Had God willed, He could have made you one congregation. But He thus puts you to the test through the revelations He has given each of you. You shall compete in righteousness to God is your final destiny, all of you. Then He will inform you of everything you had disputed. Number 9. Do you think your understanding is the ultimate truth for all submitters? And deep down do you believe it's the litmus test for true submission? In the introduction of the Quran written by Rashad Khalifa, we read the following quote. It says, All believers constitute one acceptable religion, and it starts, As expected from the Creator's final message, one of the prominent themes of the Quran is the call for unity among all believers, and the repeated prohibition of making any distinction among God's messengers. If the object of worship is one and the same, there will be absolute unity among all believers, 
It is the human factor, for example, devotion, prejudice to such powerless humans as Jesus, Muhammad, and the saints that causes division, hatred, and bitter wars among misguided believers. A guided believer is devoted to God alone and rejoices in seeing any other believer who is devoted to God alone, regardless of the name of such a believer calls his or her religion. Additionally, when you open up the Quran in the cover, what you read is the verses from 262 and 569 where it reads, Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who one believes in God, two believes in the last day, and three leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. If the focus of worship of any two people is the worship of God alone, then they should be united as submitters irrespective of the name of their religion. Number 10. Do you have a problem saying, I don't know? There's no doubt that as submitters we strive for certainty in God, His revelations, His promises, His attributes. But we have to understand this does not mean that God has given us the knowledge of everything that there is to know in our submission. God has provided us with a yardstick. And there are certain things we can measure with this yardstick with a fair amount of accuracy. But there are many things that we will be unable to determine with the limited information we have. And in 1785 through 86, it reads, they ask you about the revelation, say, the revelation comes from my Lord. The knowledge given to you is minute. If we will, we can take back what we revealed to you. Then you will find no protector against us. When we look at the examples of the righteous in the Quran, we see that they do not over-extrapolate the knowledge they have. When God asked the angels something they did not know, they did not attempt to fill in the blanks based on assumptions. They knew the limits to their knowledge. And we see this in Surah 2, verse 31 through 32, when it reads, He taught Adam all the names, then presented them to the angels, saying, Give me the names of these if you are right. They said, Be you glorified. We have no knowledge except that which you have taught us. You are omniscient, most wise. When God questions Jesus on the day of resurrection, Jesus identifies the limit of his, to his knowledge. And we see this in Surah 5, verse 116, when it reads, God will say, O Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to the people, make me and my mother idols beside God? He will say, be you glorified. I could not utter what was not right. Had I said it, you already would have known it. You know my thoughts, and I do not know your thoughts. You know all the secrets. You know, it's tempting to try to over-extrapolate our knowledge and attempt to understand the mind of God. But this is an impossible task only left for the ignorant or the arrogant. In Surah 3, verse 66, it reads, You have argued about things you knew. Why do you argue about things you don't know? As humans, we do not like dealing with ambiguity and find comfort in absolutes. So when we see someone who is excessively confident in their belief, we oftentimes equate that confidence with competence. The drawback is that if anything, confidence and competence are not related and more often than not inversely correlated. This is also known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. In Surah 2 verse 88, we read, Some would say our minds are made up. Instead, it is a curse from God as a consequence of their disbelief that keeps them from believing except for a few of them. When we believe we have the absolute truth, that our understanding is absolute, it means there's nothing for us to gain, nothing for us to learn, that our understanding is infallible. When most people are overconfident in their judgment, most of the time this overconfidence can be attributed to the lack of understanding of the edge cases of what it is they know. Because if they believe that their understanding is absolute on every single matter, it means that there's nothing for them to learn from that they've reached to the same understanding as that of God, which is blasphemous 
to say the least. In 733, it reads, Say, my Lord prohibits only evil deeds, be they obvious or hidden, and sins an unjustifiable aggression, and to set up beside God powerless idols, and to say about God what you do not know. One of the best examples of realizing just how valuable we are and why we need to be extra careful in our judgments can be seen with the example of David when dealing with the disputing brothers uh, who came to ask for his judgment regarding their sheep. And this is seen in uh, Surah 38, verse 21, where it reads, Have you received the news of the feuding men who sneaked into his sanctuary? When they entered his room, he was startled. They said, Have no fear. We are feuding with one another, and we are seeking your fair judgment. Do not wrong us and guide us in the right path. This brother of mine owns 99 sheep, while I own one sheep. He wants to mix my sheep with his and continues to pressure me. 38.24, we read David's judgment. He said, He is being unfair to you by asking to combine your sheep with his. Most people who combine their properties treat each other unfairly except those who believe and work righteousness, and these are so few. Afterwards, David wondered if he made the right judgment. He thought we were testing him. He then implored his Lord for forgiveness, bowed down and repented. We forgave him in this matter. We have granted him a position of honor with us and a beautiful abode. O David, we have made you a ruler on earth. Therefore, you shall judge among the people equitably and do not follow your personal opinion lest it diverts you from the way of God. Surely those who stray off the way of God incur severe retribution for forgetting the day of reckoning. As far as we can tell, David had the authority to make a judgment. And we see this in 2451 where it reads, The only utterance of the believers when invited to God and his messenger to judge in their affairs is to say, We hear and we obey. These are the winners. Also, chronically, it appears that David made the right judgment per 429 where it reads oh you who believe do not consume each other's properties illicitly only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted so due to the fact that this one brother with the one sheep did not want to go through with this transaction means that the transaction was not mutually acceptable and he was right in defending this uh, brother with the one sheep but still despite this david repented because there could have been one iota, the slightest of possibilities, that he might have done something wrong. And we see this when it's written in the footnote where it reads, In this clear example, 99 on one side, verse 1 on the other side, David's extreme care to render the correct judgment caused him to ask forgiveness. Are we this careful? And we have to ask, when we make a judgment, when we're so convicted into some stance having to do with the judgment of other people, are we this careful? Number 11. Do you forget the fact that since we are here on earth, it means that we are guilty of the original sin, and if it wasn't out of God's mercy, we would all be in hell right now? As we grow our souls, it's easy to get enchanted with our own righteousness. But we have to remember, we are in the bottom of the barrel. Out of all the infinite creatures that never question God's absolute authority, or the ones that took God on the offer to repent after a great feud, we were the infinitesimally few that wanted to see the demonstration ourselves. When we compare our actions against the actions of others in this experiment, we are comparing ourselves against the worst of the worst and forgetting just how bad we really are. And if it wasn't for God's mercy, we would currently all be in hell. In Surah 49 verse 14 we read, The Arab said, We are Momens, believers. Say, you have not believed. What you should say is, We are Muslims, submitters. 
until belief is established in your hearts. If you obey God and His Messenger, He will not put any of your works to waste. God is forgiver, most merciful. To think that we are Momen, true believers, is kind of a catch-22, because someone who is truly Momen would not be so confident of their status with God. Take the example of Abraham, who God called a beloved friend in Surah 4 verse 125 where it reads, Who is better guided in his religion than one who submits totally to God, leads a righteous life according to the creed of Abraham, monotheism. God has chosen Abraham as a beloved friend. Yet we see not even Abraham had the confidence to believe that he was guaranteed heaven. In 2682, it reads what Abraham said. It's, he said, the one who hopefully will forgive my sins on the day of judgment. Meaning that Abraham was still praying that God would forgive his sins, despite how close he was with God. And we see another example with uh, Jesus in the Bible. And this is Mark uh, chapter 10, starting from 17, where it reads, Jesus st uh, started on his way. A man ran up and knelt before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus replied. No one is good except God alone. Now, Satan knows it's easier to fool someone than to convince them that they have been fooled. When we are overly confident in our righteousness, Satan will have this get to our heads, nullifying all our good deeds. And we see another example from the Bible, and this is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, where we read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it reads, To some who were confident of their righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, because of this, we need to humble ourselves before our Creator and kill our egos. And in Surah 4, verse 49, we read, Have you noted those who exalt themselves? Instead, God is the one who exalts whomever He wills without the least injustice. So we get to the last point, point number 12. And while you were hearing these last 11 points, you were having an imaginary argument with me in your head, and I was losing. As stated before, this message is as much for myself as it is for anyone who's listening. If I stated anything inaccurately, may God guide the sincere to the correct understanding. God willing, we're going to end with one final example from the Bible, and this is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. It says, How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, while there's a beam in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the beam out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So let's not have our ego trick us to think that our self-righteousness is righteousness. God willing, we're going to strive to be sincere, to be humble, to be kind, to be a good submitter, and not let our ego get the best of us. Inshallah, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com or on Twitter at talkquran. And until next time, peace and God bless.